0: Today we're marking the first birthday of Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio has now completed one year's worth of programming. And I can't believe how the time has gone by so fast. We started out last June with our first podcast that featured Carla King um, talking with Ted Simon at one of the Overland events. Uh, We had a product review and a couple other things together on the first show. And it worked out great. Although when I go back and listen to those episodes, I can't help but cringe a bit as I hear some of the intros and cuts that um, that I made. But as anything, it evolves with experience, and so did Adventure Rider Radio, and I'm sure it will as it moves forward in the time to come. Last June, when we did that first episode and posted it on our website, we had zero listeners, other than a few friends and family. Today, when we post an episode on our website, We're around 30,000 downloads a month. That's amazing. 30,000 downloads a month. And overall, we're closing in on 200,000 downloads. And by the time we reach that, it'll be just over a year. 200,000. I'm so grateful for the response that we've had from this show. And I got to thank you, the listener, for that. Right from the beginning, Elizabeth and I have strived to produce an interesting, entertaining, informative, and mostly inspirational show Because I think that most of us go through life accepting what everyone tells us life is supposed to be like, without ever questioning the status quo. And many of our guests here on Adventure Rider Radio, they live completely different lives. They don't fit into the average, the norm of what people think life is supposed to be. And for that, they have this rich, incredible life with these beautiful experiences they tell us about. I believe learning about these people and listening to the way they see the world helps us look at our lives from a different perspective. Helps us imagine, dream, feel inspired, you know, to push our own limits and our own comfort zones so that we grow and, and we have a better experience with life. And maybe even, even opens our eyes to the possibilities that we didn't even consider before. Each week, we work out an angle for whatever story we have, and we try to present it to you in a way that can make a difference. We try to take a different angle, a perspective, or focus that you may not have heard before on a particular topic, or, or even a person you might have heard before, which is why the show is not the same week to week. It doesn't sound exactly the same, and some things can be bizarre as hearing a motorcycle start on one show, and the next show starts with a baby crying, and another one starts with a, a thunder of lightning. It's all in an effort to be thought-provoking, you know, to present something different. And we've had tons of planning sessions between Elizabeth and I where we talk about who would make a good interview, what subjects would be good, how deep can we go with each subject. And it's incredible how much time we spend talking about the show before we're actually producing anything. And if you were to pull back the curtain, you know, the Adventure Rider radio curtain, you'd see that it's just the two of us. It's me and Elizabeth. That's it, doing the whole thing. We find our subjects, arrange the interviews, we plan the questions and our approach for it, all the editing, the production, the final mix, and then finally uploading it to the website and posting it on social media. It's all us, just two people. And sometimes I can tell you it's a little overwhelming. After that, when we have a little bit of time left over, we've been spending some of that knocking on the doors of a few advertisers. And that's not the funnest part of it, but it's certainly necessary. We've been fortunate to have wonderful guests on this show, people who've achieved incredible things, done amazing trips, and others that have deep knowledge of the technical side of things. And we want to thank all of those because they've all come together to make Adventure Rider Radio what it is today. And of course, if it wasn't for you, the listener, hanging in there episode after episode and spreading the word as well, of course, we wouldn't be here as well, so thank you. On this episode of Adventure Rider Radio, we're going to celebrate one year by looking back at the show and the different things that we've done and some of them kind of bizarre and, and and some of them completely different we've covered many topics and stories um, from world travel on motorcycles to technical pieces and sort of everything in between and we covered weather and uh, there's all sorts of things i mean we even tackled things like suspension which i thought turned out very well and the feedback that we got uh, said that it did as well and it would be something that normally i think people would shy away from with audio but clearly you the listener can take so let's have a walk back down memory lane.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. This is Nick Sanders. Jason Spafford.
2: And I'm Lisa Morris.
3: My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm
2: Rachel. This is Ed March. This
3: is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr.
4: Gregory W. Fraser.
3: My name's Graham Field. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl.
2: This is
5: Tiffany Coat. Hello, here's Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brad Tax. This is Zoe Cannell. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Crinker. I'm Simon Thomas.
6: And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's
4: Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler.
7: This is Ted Simon. This is Eric. Go again with spirit.
3: You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motor, M O T O R,
2: This is Graham
1: Hoskins from the UK Adventure Bike TV, and here is my message. Hi there, Jim, and all the team at Adventure Rider Radio. This is Graham Hoskins from
2: Adventure Bike TV in the UK. Congratulations on reaching your first birthday. You guys are doing great things, and we look forward to hearing loads more.
5: Happy birthday to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Tiffany Coates speaking from her tent somewhere in Ireland, off on
6: another bike adventure. Hope you guys have many more great years of
5: adventure riding and sharing it with us all. And catch up with you soon, guys. Happy
7: birthday.
8: This is an Adventure Rider Radio, congratulations on your first year, fantastic job keeping the stories going and the inspiration to riders all over the world. And best of luck on your next anniversary and many more after that.
5: Happy anniversary Adventure Rider Radio, I'm Naomi Tweedle.
8: And I'm Albert Lara with Motolara.com. We absolutely
5: love the show.
6: Such great content, and we're so happy that Adventure Riders have a podcast to listen to.
8: Yeah, we find the uh, podcast very informative and very entertaining. So thank you, Jim, and everybody at Adventure Rider Radio.
5: Thank you. Hey, we're Josephine and Daniel from Open Explorers.
7: And we're Lisa and Jason from Two World Nomads.
5: We're traveling the length of the Americas from the north
6: down.
7: And we're traveling from the south up.
6: So get this, Jim, the four of us are sat here right now. We're in Costa Rica. We're both in the middle of our trips. And we think that's testament to guys like you who are inspiring everyone out there, regular folks like us, to get out there and follow their dream.
5: Well, truth is, we only met because we have the same taste for cheap hostels. But anyways, (laughs) Jim, uh, You're a great guy, I enjoyed being interviewed by you and uh, keep on doing the great stuff. Um, All the best. Cheers.
6: Cheers. Cheers.
2: Hi Jim, this is Graham Field and I just want to congratulate you on your first birthday and to let you know that i'm often at events in the uk and people come up and talk about adventure rider radio so you've had a real impact this side of the atlantic uh, well done on that and everybody agrees that it's a very professional broadcast long may it continue
4: happy birthday Ah, uh, muy buenos dias from beautiful downtown mazatlan sinaloa mexico just want to say congratulations and happy anniversary to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for doing a great job. You're a real asset to the motorcycle adventure travel industry. I hope a lot more people participate, and I look forward to hearing you guys in the future for many decades to come.
5: Hasta la vista. Glenn Hickstead from StrikingBiking.net. <laughs>
3: are sorry, the number you have reached is not in service. Please check the number or try your call again. This is a recording.
0: Well, we're going to kick things off here with a uh, little celebration today by going right back to one of the early episodes. Um, if you know the book, University of Gravel Roads by Rene Cormier, we had Rene on the show. And, um, I think with all of these things, when you listen, to them, it might spark an interest and you have to go back and listen to the old episodes because there's a lot of a great information and, and wonderful people that we've had on. Uh, you go back through and you listen to it again, it's like listening to it all over again. There's just so much information in there. And here I was talking with Renee, Very interesting guy to talk to. And the book, The University of Gravel Roads, is absolutely fantastic. And I may have stumped him right off the bat with my first question when I asked him to give his name and describe what he does.
8: Well, the name part is easy. That's Rene Cormier. And what I do is uh, it falls roughly into two camps. The biggest thing that we do is guided motorcycle touring organization in Southern Africa that, that keeps us busy through half of the year. And our our second thing that we do is we do a lot of, inspirational speaking and speaking about global travel to other motorcycle dealers and rallies and interested folks and sometimes at banks and sometimes at insurance companies and, and
0: renee had some interesting lessons about selling things off raising money and, and sort of maybe what your plans and expectations are compared to what actually happens because here he was telling me about selling off all of his stuff and finding out that wow that thing he spent a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on wasn't worth that much money when he sold stuff. it.
8: There was a few things that that were quite startling to me. A, the stuff that I bought was worth very little compared to what I had paid for it. So I had a lot of skis and bike stuff and motorcycle stuff, and I'm getting pennies on the dollar or or, or less than half of what these things were that I paid new for. So that was very interesting to me. I also realized I had a lot of crap. Like man, it just never ended. Right, the stuff just collects in in in, in cupboards and a, and above the bike in the garage and underneath my bed and I was dragging around boxes of crap from from house move to house move to house move Christmas cards from people I didn't know who they were. Uh, boxes of stuff and I and it felt so good to purge that. That was that was less number one. Man, I've got too much crap in my life and, and I'm not getting anything for it. So I'm gonna start buying new stuff from now on. And buying less of it. That was the other thing. So my even now that um, actually even even now to this day it works out very well for us because we travel so much we go one suitcase. Each. Mine's a little bit smaller. I typically travel with a carry-on size, but all of my clothes are in there for the entire year. And when we go into the winter season, we go we go and we pick up some warmer stuff, and then we come out of the, the winter season we give it to Goodwill. So even on our when we are in Africa, I'm on the road for almost five months there, but I I travel my clothes are in a small Carry-on size of um, luggage, and then when Colette and the baby have got another piece, big piece of luggage, of course there's two of them in there. But if if she wants to pick up a new shirt or a new pair of pants, well, something that's in that suitcase must go. Right? It's it's a non-negotiable kind of thing. There's just no room for for new stuff, and it, and it's actually wonderfully restricting on our stuff. It it, re, it eliminates impulse buying, and um, and it's, it's a nice reminder that we don't really need
0: this stuff. The name Grant Johnson is well known to a lot of people in this industry. Uh, it's synonymous with adventure motorcycling for most of us because Grant and his wife Susan started the website Horizons Unlimited and now they do the events that go, well, really around the world. And here Grant is talking about how he started doing Horizons Unlimited. So he, he was a traveler first and while out there traveling, he sort of stumbled upon it as you can hear him say here. So you came back after your round-the-world trip, and you decided to come up with Horizons Unlimited. How did that come about?
4: Uh, (laughs) Well, we started that, actually, in Ushuaia. We were waiting for the boat, which was another five or six days, and we were on CompuServe at the time. And CompuServe said, you can have a web page. I said, what's a web page? Figured that out, created a quickie website using CompuServe software, put it up and by the time we got back from Antarctica there was emails from people asking us how we did Tunisia and how we did South Africa and various other parts along the trip and so we started answering questions And by the time we got back to Canada, there was lots of questions and lots of people asking. So we started the bulletin board because I was tired of answering the same question again and again and again. And figured if if everybody else can add in what they learned and answer some of the questions as well, we could all share in the information and help each other do some traveling. Because, of course, at that time, there was very few people traveling. So the bulletin board started and we started running a newsletter and it's just exploded and grown from there. Now we're up to 114,000 pages. Actually, it was Christmas of 97 to be exact. What is Horizons Unlimited all about now? It's still the same thing. Travelers helping each other figure out how to do all this international travel stuff. You know, you, it, It's fairly easy to get on your bike and ride to the next state or the next province or the next town. Or if you want, just on a Sunday, go to the local coffee shop and talk about riding. But going a little farther... People wonder, and especially with all the the uh, CNN. You listen to it and say, "Oh, it's dangerous! It's dangerous there! It's dangerous there!" And everywhere is dangerous. Well, it actually isn't. Um, so the the website helps people understand that there's a lot of people doing this stuff now, and it's not actually all that dangerous. You just have to go, and people are the same everywhere. I mean, everybody just wants a nice life, and they want to be, you know, have a nice wife and kids and retire comfortably, I mean, we all want the same thing, you know? just want to have a good life. Um, it's not the place isn't full of bad guys everywhere you go. I mean, if you go to downtown Vancouver, a few, there's a few places at about 2 a.m. on a Saturday night, if you go down there drunk out of your mind, you're going to get into trouble. Well, same thing goes everywhere, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. different about it. So it's just a matter of sharing the information, that's all we try and do is share information and help each other and get out there and go learn about the world find out what it's all about
0: as most riders would attest to riding a motorcycle is addictive you get out there you ride for a bit and you just want to ride more it's not like going and getting a fine meal you know where you sit down and you're full and afterwards you shove your chair back you say oh that was great and now I'm going to do something different riding a bike is completely the opposite you get on your bike and you ride and the more you ride the more you want to ride it's clearly addictive and two people who've taken that to the extremes are Simon and Lisa Thomas because they left for I think it was an 18 month trip and that was 11, 12 plus years ago. They're still on the road uh, they're still out there riding their bikes around you can check out their website and see the the adventure goes on and I spoke with Simon and Lisa while they were hunkered down in a, a tiny little um, concrete bunker in Mexico sweating like crazy while the, the heat is up and the fan is off because we didn't want the noise in the background and they handled it like uh, like real pros so after traveling by motorcycle or two motorcycles for over 11 years without stopping tell us what a day in the life is like for the two of you now I think hot,
5: I, just, I just, whenever I get asked that question I, I seem to remember Asia very very early starts in the morning so 4 430, 430 kind of pulling your brain together um, because you've got to be on the road by, by 5, 5.30 because it just gets so but intensely I, I say, hot.
6: Always, always for me, I, I, I dread the first bit for Simon saying, hot, you're in the tent, you're packing up. And invariably, I'm the one that's packing up inside the tent because I'm a lot smaller. Simon's pretty tall and it's easier for him to get outside. You're my
5: favourite and, hobbit.
6: And, and, and chuck things out to him once they're packed. But certain things have got to be packed when they're in the tent. Um, so usually my day starts off with me being in a sauna and I'm absolutely cranky, cranky, dripping with sweat, throwing things out at Simon so he can put them on the bikes. Um, and then I'm already sodden even before I've got my motorcycle kit. What's the last
5: thing you think about at night and what's the first thing you think about in the morning?
6: Oh, um, yeah, you're always thinking about the bikes. It's just like a, the baby, I presume. Is the baby all right? Are oh, the bike's all right.
5: My mum calls them the grandkids. And I said, yeah. why do you call them the grandkids? She said, well, they're like children, your motorcycles. So I said, in what way? She said, well, you love them and they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs>
6: the, the, the first thing we do in the morning is to look out and see the bikes. They're always close by us. Um, and last thing at night. Um, they're part of our family now.
5: We look at the GPS. We look at the map. We look at where we're trying to get to based on the yeah, agenda so once we have. and then we just you know.
6: set out on the road. Sometimes we don't bother having anything, which I know goes against the grain for a lot of people. Oh, I must have that first uh, breakfast. I must have that first coffee. Um, we're very bad.
5: Well, the other, the reality is, it might take it might take you you know say five minutes to cook something up and to eat it. Maybe ten but you've then got to wait half an hour for everything to cool down before you can pack it away. So in some cases it's actually just easier to pack it all up, jump on the bike, get half an hour's worth of riding done, maybe an hour, and then pull off and stop because whilst you're having that first coffee, whilst you're having a bike to eat in a small cafe somewhere, you get to meet the people. You get to have a conversation.
6: Unless of course you're in the middle of nowhere and then there is nowhere to pull off and have a coffee. Um, um, but just sometimes. You're thinking about Mongolia. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Mongolia. But then you just pull off and have some water. Um, so often you lose a lot of weight too. This is quite good. Um, then there's riding, just carrying on riding. Uh, we we use an intercom system. We have since the beginning of our trip. It's it's changed. We're now on a different system. Obviously, 11 years has gone on technology-wise.
5: Um, I am now feeling very Star Trek.
6: Are you? Yeah. And um, we don't often communicate. It might be a dead animal in the road, truck in the middle of the road.
5: large wash of sand that looks normal but is, in fact, fesh-fesh. Don't go anywhere near it, yeah, otherwise you're going kind
6: of to fall but in the hole. Chit-chat doesn't normally happen. Normally you're concentrating on the riding or you're just too damn hot. Um, and so when we pull off and stop on the side of the road, road, road somewhere, um, that's when we get to have a chat about where are we are going
5: to start? What we've seen, how we've ridden, what we've smelt, the amount of dust covering the exposed parts of our skin, the heat, the humidity, um, the amazing wildlife that one of us saw that the other one didn't perhaps, or the crazy or wonderful piece of driving that we experienced from other road users, um, and just managing your expectations of the day versus what you actually experienced. I think I think both of us are still surprised how, how marvelled we are. I honestly thought a small part of me would have been, I don't want to use the word bored, but a little more blasé, and, and it hasn't happened. Maybe that's why we're still travelling.
6: Probably, I, I would say so. There's always something to wonder at. Um, and then, really, just from a, a certain time of the day, uh, thinking about... Where you're going to be stopping. Now, Obviously, I've looked at the map, I've done a little research. Sometimes it's just looking at the map and running my finger along the route that we're going to be taking, whether it be road or or a a piece somewhere, um, and guesstimating as to the distance that we might
5: make that day. And guesstimating what facilities are going to be there, because ultimately your point A to point B is dictated to based on not so much your need for food, but your need for water.
6: So if we know we're in the middle of nowhere, then we'll have to make sure that we've already got the water with us. And we know we're going to be stopping in the middle of nowhere, therefore we we'll have to have everything ready there with us. Or we're heading towards a small town, village, or a city. Um, and do we camp? Do we camp before? Do we go through the city, camp out? Do we go and look for a small room somewhere? What will security be like? And often you don't know that until you're approaching the area and you make decisions whilst you're in that situation.
5: But are all the decisions that we make based on our mental ability to calculate or, are, or do we A lot
6: of it is, is, how does it feel?
5: Okay. How,
6: how, when you're riding through the outskirts of a town or a city, how does it feel? Well,
5: even, if it, even if it looks absolutely even fine. Even if it
6: looks absolutely fine. We use our senses, we use our, 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 our gut instinct a lot, lot more. And I think that that's something that has developed during the years. I think a lot of people in their day-to-day lives, their normal lives, going into the city. I mean, I used to go into London and work. You, you, you have to cut off those senses. You have to become an isolated little box. Um, because if you were to take in absolutely everything, it would drive you crazy. You'd go loopy. Um, listening to everybody's conversations, the noise, the the amount of traffic, that it's just too much on you. You have to isolate. sensory yeah, overload. Sensory overload. So, so we attune ourselves to I think, think so. to,
5: to think through everything. we, yeah. we, we try to rationalise um, situations and scenarios. And sometimes, when that happens, we just completely ignore. What?
6: The telltale signs. Yeah, the gut instinct, yeah.
5: which says, I can't work out why, there's no rhyme or reason, but wow, this doesn't feel good.
6: Or you're looking at people's body language, the locals' body language, um, expression on their faces. Um, everything has to be taken into account. And, and it might, some other person might not recognise it, but we now work very, very well together that we can just, look at one another and we know exactly what the other is thinking. It doesn't need to be spoken out loud. In fact, sometimes you can't speak it out loud, but you just know, we need to leave, we need to move on, this is not a good area. Um, and we make our decision at the end of the day based on that a lot of the time.
5: I think there's a lot to be said for, for instincts that we, in the Westernized world, choose to choose to ignore, believing that we can, you know, think through and rationalize situations and, and don't need to occasionally.
6: One of the best things at the end of the day is if we set up camp, I love just setting up cooking. I'll cook on, on the floor or the back of one of the bikes um, and for me the whole prepping and cooking I always try to cook properly. Uh, you, you can't survive on noodles and tuna for 11 years. Um, <laughs> I always try to cook a proper meal with the produce, with local produce that I've been able to pick if up or, or carry or dry stock if there's nothing and sit back and just absorb the evening. You might have locals with you. They might come suddenly appear out of nowhere and come and sit by you. But often that doesn't, you know, you just don't need to sit and converse. You can't, but you know, you, you, you acknowledge that they're there. They're happy just to sit And you be their entertainment for the evening. (laughs)
5: But would you you say that for us as a a couple, as a riding couple, one of the biggest thrills is actually not knowing exactly how your day is going to work out, not knowing exactly where you're going to be, the lack of routine?
6: We're often asked about how how do you plan your day? How do you know where you're going to stop? How do you know where you're going to get gas? How do you know where you're going to get food? How many miles will you do that day? Um, And we can't answer those questions because we don't plan like that anymore.
5: Well, it's not that we don't, we don't plan like that. We understand that yeah. that level of control simply is impossible. You haven't got that
6: level of control. You cannot put out a list. Day one, we're going to do 380 miles. Day two, we're going to stop here and only do 40. Day. It doesn't work like that. You have to guesstimate, make a, an average mileage. Uh, you don't know what the roads are going to be like. How many miles do you do a day? Well, it, it does, it's not the miles that are important. It's what's underneath your tires that's important.
5: But how, how can you not know? Well, you said, well, anything I don't know, uh, you know I'll, I'll guess some other stuff, but some of the stuff that doesn't work out based on the ambitions I had at the beginning of the month, we then have to rely on our ability to think on our feet, and we have a supreme amount of confidence in our ability to do that. Um, But that confidence in ourselves that's developed in the last 11 years allows us to live in a particular way that I think a lot of people would find very intimidating. And we did uh, initially, but we've realized that as individuals, we're a lot more capable than we could have possibly imagined. And that allows us a degree of freedom that was before unimaginable. You must
0: have people ask you all the time what it is you do and how do you do it for that matter?
5: You know, the the two questions that we get asked the most by far is... Um, first of all, how do you and Lisa maintain a healthy relationship, being on the road together 24-7 in some pretty you know, pressurized situations? And secondly, how the hell do you afford it? And the reality is you end up becoming very, very good at things you had no interest in before the journey started. You think on your feet and you develop your entrepreneurial skills.
0: There's so many episodes that I want to talk about on this one. Uh, I'm not going to be able to cover them all. I'm not going to be able to talk about everybody on them. But I'm going to give you an example here of some of the tech stuff that we've covered that, that worked out very well. And I'm using the one with Grant Johnson because he's so good at explaining stuff. Here he's talking about a demo that he does at, at one of the uh, Horizons Unlimited events, which if you haven't been to one, you know, you really got to do it. I mean, at least do it the once to say that you went there. You, you talk about information. There is just so much information at one of these events. And So this little demonstration that he's talking about from this excerpt is uh, just from one of those events. This little demo that he's talking about um, from this excerpt is the same thing he talks about at many of his events, the, the scheduled talk that he does. And it's about getting your bike set up. It's something that most of us don't even think about. You jump on your bike and you figure that, um, that there's no need to adjust anything. And Grant points out that you need to set up your bike. Why is a bike not set up for you to begin with? Why is my bike that I bought off the floor not perfectly set up for me already out of the factory? I mean, the, the manufacturer built it and sent it out that way. And I'm ready to jump on it.
4: The biggest problem is that they're trying to fit everybody. And when when, when I do this uh, thing for uh, one of our events, it's really easy because I can show, point to somebody and say, "You're five foot two and look at somebody else and you're six foot four, and you're going to ride the same bike. There's no way on earth that they can make it fit both of you easily right out of the factory. Everything has to be different. Uh, Some people are short in the body. Some are long in the body. Susan and I are a really good example. I'm six feet tall, and Susan is five foot four, and we have the same leg inseam. In other words, I'm very long in the body, and she's very short in the body. And trying to get a bike to fit both of us is just not going to happen. But fortunately, the manufacturers are smart enough to give give us some adjustments so we can make things better, and we have to do that. The real problem is that when you buy a bike from your dealer, the first thing they do is take your money and then they deliver you the bike and you get on and you ride away. But how many people have actually had the dealer say, okay, sit on the bike and let's get it adjusted for you. I'd be willing to bet that there's maybe one, maybe two people out there that have actually had that experience. It's very, very rare. So you have to do it yourself.
0: How is it different from a car? Because it it seems to me you just jump in a car and you drive it.
4: Well, you don't. Again, Susan and I are a really good example. (laughs) We drive a Mazda 3, and it has an adjustable height seat. She cranks the seat to the very, very top, and I crank it to the very, very bottom, and change the angle and move a few things around, change the, the tilt of the steering wheel. There's a lot of things that you do adjust in a car, but the... I think you adapt more in a car to the where things are because they haven't made it as adjustable as it could be i would love to have my steering wheel about an inch farther away susan would love to have it an inch closer well it doesn't have that adjustment so you deal with it but on a motorcycle you can make all these changes and you can make it fit you much better and i think one of the important things to think about is that in a car, you're, you're passive, you're just kind of sitting there like a lump and pointing it in approximately the right direction and tuning your brain out. On a motorcycle, you're riding it, you are in tune with it, you are using it. Um, it's much more of a, a connection that you have with that bike, so you want it to work better, easier, and it can be more tiring, so you want it to make it less effort and less tiring as well. And we can do all of that with some very minor adjustments.
0: Sam Manicom is a name that's well known to a lot as well. Um, he is the author of four incredible adventure books that if you have not read already, you must go to his site. Um, just search for Sam Manicom or check our show notes for a, a link to his site and get the four books because you, you have to read them start to finish. You know they, They're in series and uh, it's of his adventure going around the world. Here Sam gives us some uh, some camping tips and one thing I really like about Sam he's very thorough when he comes on to the show and he talks about things we've had him on a couple of times a number of times and uh, he's very thorough one of the, the ones we had him on for was a, a gem what we call gems that we do every now and then where he talks about a, a secret riding place or maybe a, a riding route that you wouldn't otherwise find unless you had it pointed out to you and Sam is so thorough I mean he really researches this stuff very well and he has a, a very clear and concise way of explaining it and here we're talking about some camping tips camping as much as you have from a motorcycle you've obviously developed some habits that work for you or, or have some ideas or even items that, that work for you very well do you have um, some of those you could tell us about
1: well, the first thing is a decent tent. Um, if if there's one of you, then um, a large two-person tent. If there are two of you, then definitely a three-person tent. It's going to be your home. It's got to be somewhere that you can sit up inside. It's got to have mosquito netting on both ends so that you can have a draft going through it when it's really hot. Um, I always go for at least a three-season tent because I want to be able to camp wherever I find myself and in whatever conditions. It's well worth spending the money on a decent tent. Likewise, um, a good sleeping bag. Um, always either a three-season or a four-season sleeping bag. Um, you know, if it's cold, you're going to be really happy. And even in hot countries, there's altitude, and you can be really cold in the desert, for example. Um, if it's hot, then don't, don't, don't use it. Um, we always carry cotton or silk sleeping bag liners with us, and they're they're great when it's really hot. A decent sleeping mat, that's also very, very good. If you're going to aim for somewhere where you're going to have a lot of cold weather, then I'm a, a big advocate of down-filled sleeping bags. The difference that they make in temperature uh, retention for you is is quite phenomenal. Because, of course, you lose most of the heat in your body when you're camping through your sleeping mat and into the ground. Um, if you haven't got a, a down sleeping mat, then um, yeah, well, just go to the local supermarket and get some cardboard boxes and stick those underneath you. That uh, It makes a phenomenal difference. I think one of the other things is um, having a petrol stove. You've inevitably got fuel with you, so there's nothing worse than having to spend ages trawling around trying to find gas cylinders when you've got petrol So, and the bulk of carrying gas. Why do it when you can carry uh, when you've got your, your petrol with you all of the time. I think if you can if you can sleep well and you can eat well, then you're going to travel in, in the healthiest and best frame of mind. Uh, we always make sure that we set off the day with a hot drink inside us and a meal inside us. Uh, by meal, I mean a bowl of muesli, for example. I know some people just get up and, and travel, but I like to be ready for the unexpected. And if we've got a hot drink inside us and um, uh, some food inside of us, then basically we can keep going through just about whatever the road for, um, throws at us until we find somewhere comfortable that we want to have lunch. Burger and I always use um, a stainless steel thermos flask. And it's got a, a litre of, of water in it. And uh, one of the things we do in the evening is we'll boil a load of water and we'll fill the thermos flask with that. And then first thing in the morning, we'll be making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee as we're getting ourselves packed up. And while we're getting packed up, then the billy's on the boil for filling that thermos. And so uh, when we're traveling through the morning, we've got hot water ready for the next cup of coffee. And, uh, yeah, it's I like the freedom that that can give you. And, um, yeah, Um
0: yeah, I think that's probably um, the best tips. i got uh, two more questions for you, and one of them I think is you're probably going to have an answer immediately because it's probably a question you get asked about over and over and over. And I even hesitate sometimes to get too much into this because I think it's something that uh, is concentrated on a little too much, but it's about the motorcycle and modifications. And I, I know you chose an RADGS, and you already said that the, you chose it because it was recommended to you, and you're, you're happy with the choice, and you do believe that people should take the bike that they're comfortable with. But do you have... Some- some um, recommendations on modifications that you made to your bike that actually worked and you felt were needed and that you would recommend to other people regardless of make or model
1: the first thing that i did was i stuck a 43 liter fuel tank on the bike the guy sold it to me um I'd I'd seen them in the showroom and remember that, you know, I didn't have any motorcycle friends and it just seemed to be a very logical thing to do to carry a significant amount of fuel capacity. And I had read in a magazine that carry as much weight as you can between the two wheels on your bike and preferably down as low as you can so that uh, your sense of gravity is kept low. And I'd seen these petrol tanks and I thought, yeah, actually, they look as if they bring the fuel down really low and definitely between the two wheels. So this seems like a good idea. And the guy in the showroom said to me, so where are you going and why do you want this tank? And I told him, and he said, right, okay, I've got just the thing for you. Hold on. So he went out in the back, and a few moments later, he came back with a lump hammer. So, you know, a mini sledgehammer. And he walked over to a petrol tank that they had on a, a bike, which they'd got on sale. And as he walked towards it, he pulled his arm back with this hammer in it, and he hammered. He gave this petrol tank a really good thump. And to my amazement, all that happened was the hammer bounced back. No cracks, no breaks, nothing. He said to me, it's a nylon petrol tank. You're going to fall off a lot where you're going and grinned. Um, He saw me coming, didn't he? Uh, But he said, you know, if you've got a plastic petrol tank and you fall off a lot on rocky surfaces and the chances are it will break. You'll never break a nylon tank. Would I buy a nylon petrol tank again or a large petrol tank? Actually, I have my reservations. I think the ideal for me is to have a 300-mile range. If I've got that 300 mile range, then I reckon that I can go most places except for the most remote places in deserts and I can fi- go from one place to the next and find enough fuel to keep going. Less than that and I'm going to be nail biting a little bit. Of course, you can always top up by buying um, cheap local cherry cans for the, the longer stretches and strapping those onto your bike and using them when you need them and then just give them away afterwards so that you're keeping your, your, your weight down. Um, That petrol tank cost me a lot of money. It is an old friend. Would I do it again now? Actually, the money that it cost me in comparison to some plastic jerry cans temporarily strapped on, I could have more than I could probably have ridden the length of two continents with the amount of money it cost me. Uh So would I do it again? Perhaps not. Having said that, it was a great place to have all of that petrol hanging. And for peace of mind, it was fabulous. Um, Having put all that weight on the front end of the bike, I put progressive fork springs in It seemed to me to be logical that I was going to hit potholes and having that extra weight up front of the bike, the bike wasn't designed or the suspension on the bike wasn't designed to deal with that extra weight. So progressive fork springs. And I think if I was preparing a bike now, regardless if I was carrying additional weight there, I would definitely do that. You do hit potholes and that extra strength with your fork springs, uh, I'm convinced, makes a massive difference. I've come across people who haven't done it and they've cracked mainframes, they've damaged their forks, all sorts of things. So these forks Progressive fork Springs are fabulous. I put um, a bash plate, uh, or two bash plates, on the underside of the engine and the underside of the collector box, and they have just been absolutely fantastic as far as protecting the engine and um, the collector box and so on. Would I do that again? Yes, I would, without doubt. And, and you can make those for yourself if you can't find something that fits your bike. Um, a luggage rack. Yeah, um, my luggage rack is made out of one centimetre boxed steel tube. I like the idea of keeping the weight on my bike as low as possible. And I see some frames that are just really, really well engineered. But the weight involved with them is massive. Um, My aluminium panniers, these racks worked for me very, very well in Nepal. I got hit by a runaway horse and cart and the hub on the the wheel from the runaway horse and cart hit my pannier. The pannier just received a large dent on the corner of it. The rack itself uh, broke. It snapped. It's steel. I can get that welded anywhere. Was there any damage to the subframe on the motorcycle or anything else on the bike? No, there wasn't. That sort of damage could have caused me an awful lot of problem. So having the lighter weight um, rack but reinforced suitably in the corners and with bars across the back behind the wheel so that there was minimal flex, that's been such a good decision. The panniers themselves, I, I like aluminium panniers for the sort of travelling that I do. Um, they're multi-purpose at the end of the day i take them off the bike and they become my seat and my my dining table when i'm staying in cheap local hotels then i take them off the bike and i lock them to the bed so they become my my in hotel room safe um you know so they're they're really useful for a, a, a multiple number of reasons what else did i do oh i put hand guards on the handlebars They're a really good idea. I've had stones thrown up at me by trucks that have been in front and had the bruises on my chest to tell the story from that. Uh, A friend of mine had a stone thrown up by a truck and it hit his hand. It broke all of his fingers. Um, The handguards have absolutely without doubt protected me from that. I've also put mesh on the front of my headlight. What a, what a pain in the backside if a stone gets thrown up and smashes your headlight. You're just a, a target for any unscrupulous police if that happens. And of course, although I don't ride at night time unless I absolutely have to, um, it's nice to know that you can do it and do it safely if you are forced into that position. One of my favourite bits of kit is a sheepskin saddle cover. It's um it's, it's it's taken before it's been processed, so it's still full of lanolin. The sheepskins that you get, um, which are made for going in bedrooms and things like that, they have the lanolin taken out of them because it's a fairly greasy, natural um, oil. And um, But once it's taken out, the sheepskins just soak up the water. If the lanolin's still in it, then they repel the water, so you don't have the problem with that. I like the sheepskin because it works as a, a multiple-purpose tool, when it's hot, it's much cooler to sit on than vinyl or leather. It's because after a little while, sheepskin goes sort of knobbly. It's almost like sitting on something that's massaging your backside all of the time, which can really (laughs) help to stop bum ache. Um, When it's cold, it's a lot warmer to sit on than leather or vinyl so you and well yeah you lose a lot of heat through your backside um on a long journey when it's really really cold then i used to stick it up the front of my bike jacket and so i'd got yet another buffer against the the the, the, you know the slipstream Mm. um what else did I do? Oh, I put a mud guard on um, a Jawa mud guard on the on the front mud uh, mud, mud flat because I like the idea of keeping as much crud as possible off my engine. Um, it was a nice souvenir. Picked that up in Egypt. Um, my bike's made up of all sorts of different bits of, of different types of bikes and Land Rovers and Toyotas and all sorts.
0: <laughs> so the panniers, the, the hand guards, the headlight mash, the sheepskin saddle cover, and the mud guards, that's all stuff you would do again, right?
1: Yes, I would okay. do. Yeah, very much so. And I would do the, the guards underneath the, the engine and the gearbox. Yeah. Um, definitely do those. And I would do the, the frame um, as lightweight again. Anything else? That's that's pretty much all I've I've ever done to the bike while I've been
0: travelling. I mean, sorry everything you said here you said you'll do again is there anything that you did that you except for the fuel tank the fuel tank was the only thing you left out is there anything else that you did that you just thought was just a you know you wouldn't wouldn't bother with it again I mean I hate to say it's a waste but just something you wouldn't choose to do again
1: Yeah I put a top box on the bike and I wouldn't do that again um, I I never needed it it was cumbersome and I found that I could pack more into a soft, um, strong, waterproof bag than I could into the top box. The only time I missed having the top box was was that it was a nice place to put a crash helmet. But I soon got around that. I used to hang it on top of my um, handlebars, but um, just have a a cable with a padlock and lock it through the handlebars. And nobody ever vandalized it. Nobody ever tried to take it. So I I just never found um, a good use for a top box. And that really was just about the only thing that I, I i put on the bikes that i wouldn't have done I, I mean other than far too much stuff ah oh, the salesman saw me coming and they could see that i was a novice <laughs> motorcyclist so I, I i bought things to help me through just about every eventuality and for a long time in africa for example while i still had all the spare parts you know, the, the word got around listen if you've got a bmw r80 or an r100 find sam if you've got a problem he's probably carrying the spare parts I gave away, I don't know, 60% of the spare parts that I'm carrying. And you know, I've still got, all these years later, some of the spare parts that I set off with.
0: And still in speaking with Sam, we talked about a question that I ask a lot of people um, on this show, because I think it's so interesting, and that's how do you define adventure? Because everyone has a different idea. There's certain people who have very strong opinions about what they consider an adventure to be, and what you need to achieve to even call it an adventure, being that it's almost a sacred word. And of course, other people uh, will come up with something completely different that... Even just a short hour ride is enough to have an adventure in. So it's interesting to talk about the definitions of adventure. Here Sam is telling his definition of adventure. Sam, let me start by asking you, how do you define adventure? And is adversity required?
1: <laughs> do you know, this is really strange because I've just finished working on an article um, asking that very question. What is adventure all about? Why And what's adventure motorcycling? Uh, I've got some some really set ideas on it. I think that an adventure... Well, for starters, the word adventure is getting a bit hackneyed and so on, and the media and manufacturers tend to be lumping the word into a particular type of box. Whereas for me, I think adventure is something that's that's really wide open. Adventure is something that gets you out of your home environment... It's something that stretches you. It's something that gives you the opportunity to learn about something new. Um, it gives you the opportunity to find out about yourself because you put yourself in, in difficult situations or situations that you've just never been anything in, in anything like it before. And that's when you're going to have an adventure. But, you know, I can do that by going and riding in uh, the back of Beyond of Wales, for example, because I don't know Wales very well, I don't know its roads, I don't know a huge amount about the culture, so everything that I see when I'm riding there is going to be new, and there will be challenges, and yeah, I, I, just, I just love it, adventure, it's a great word, and yeah, it's real. The word adventure has the ring of promise to it, doesn't it, the, the ring of mm. exciting new things about to happen, and yeah. I hope the word adventure doesn't get um, dumbed down too much.
0: Another thing we talk about is the choice of motorcycle for your adventure trip. I know there's that commercial image of the great big bike with the big bars on it and the huge panniers that are made of aluminum and the person all decked out looking like that Legoland character. And a lot of the real adventurers out there will sort of grin and maybe disagree with that image that you don't... uh, And a lot of the real adventure riders out there will disagree with that image and say, that's nice, but that's not what you need. And as a matter of fact, in many cases, it's completely opposite. Sam's one of those people who bought a bike many years ago and he's still riding it. He rode it around the world and he's still riding it. Tiffany Coates is another one and there's others. And here we're talking about why Sam chose the R80 GS. In other words, it comes into that conversation about the perfect motorcycle. So here we are. You wanna know what the perfect motorcycle is and how to choose it? Well, Sam Manicom has it all for you right here. (laughs) Is it the same bike that you took on your trips?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a BMW R80 GS. And um, I ended up with that bike because uh, I was in the pub and I was telling my friends that I was going to go off and ride a bike the length of Africa. They were just creased up laughing because, well, they knew I couldn't ride a motorcycle. So it was, aye, aye, what's he up to this time? Uh, But uh, there were a couple of guys sitting on the table next door to us and um, my friends and I, we were chatting away and they were laughing and we had bike magazines all over the table. And, of course, each one said, this bike is the best thing since sliced bread. And, uh, but I guess we were being a little bit noisy because it wasn't difficult for the guys on the tables next door to us to listen in. And uh, we ended up with quite a few of the, the people from the different tables actually joining in with us. And a couple <laughs> of the guys uh, said to me, uh, so what bike are you going to take, Sam? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, just look at this lot. And he said, forget that lot. Take a BMW R80 GS. They're bulletproof. His mate then leant round and said, yeah, they're blooming idiot proof and all. So I thought, well, I'd better have one of those then. And they were right. Bulletproof and idiot proof. That's me, by the way.
0: There's so many more. I'm running out of time here. There's so many more, but here's a good one. Here's Nick Sanders giving away his secret, as we did on this episode, for long-distance riding. Nick, I wanted to ask you, um, I I really wanted you to to have a a giveaway. So if you would just give it all away right here on Adventure Rider Radio. The secrets, your secrets, of long-distance riding.
3: Well, there's two things. I think, I mean, again, I'm just, you know, shooting shooting um from the hip really one is smooth riding for example um certainly i ride in a very very economically um you know all my movements are very considered whilst i'm whilst i'm riding i mean this isn't for two or three or four hundred miles in a day this is for when we're going uh, above and beyond a thousand miles a day and some days i have ridden 1200 and 1500 miles um, and, you know, you're getting to the very limit of your capabilities at that point and the very limit of your energies. So smoothness, considered movements, um, economy of movement, efficiency of movement, really. And in some ways, you know, Jim, that, that applies to the mind as well. You know, I think that um, I don't allow my head to get full of bad thoughts. When you're riding a long distance, you can get into all sorts of trains of thinking, which sometimes is hurtful. Um, You know, you've had a row with a wife and you go out on a bike ride and you're not riding as well as you might. You have to eliminate all that sort of thing. Remember, I'm an ordinary guy in many ways, and I suffer from the same kind of stuff that every kind of ordinary motorcyclist also suffers from. And, And I think the economy of movement, economy of thought, smoothness, this is a sort of thing of course there are the other ones the other attributes that you need are a lot more obvious energy concentration um a oneness feeling good the way you ride your bike um you have to have peripheral vision um, and, um, and, and, and clear thoughts. Yeah, that's
0: about it, really. And you know Nick Sanders is the fastest man around the world and a bunch of other records that he holds for long-distance riding. He's a serious long-distance rider and has been since he started out riding bicycles um, when he was very young. And Nick was going to come out of the show and, and give us a recording here for this one, but um, he's off on an adventure. He sent me an email and said that he's in the middle of leading a, a group round somewhere. I, I can't remember where it was, but I think he's somewhere here in North. North. North America, running around leading a group of uh, motorcyclists. And one episode that I found really neat to do, and and it was quite an honor for me to do, was to talk with Ted Simon. And it turned out that the interview that we did was right at his birthday. So we we really dedicated the show to to Ted Simon's 84th birthday.
7: This is Ted Simon. Uh, I'm very happy to be here on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm at my home in California, in in uh, Round Valley, which is uh, in Mendocino County. Today we have a real special
0: show for you. It's a tribute to Ted Simon, because it's his birthday. Today Ted turns 84. Now, I really enjoyed this interview with Ted, and I learned a lot of things about him. But one thing that I really picked out that stuck in my mind afterwards was the fact that it was the first time that I heard what precipitated his trip around the world. What was it that gave him the idea to jump on the motorcycle? And at the time, he thought he was the first one to do it. But what was it that really got him going, that made him get on that bike and get out there and ride? Was there a catalyst, like a book or experience, that gave you the idea to ride the motorcycle around the world? Was there, was there some
7: sort of thing that, that started that going? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I can't, I've never been able to answer that. I have no heroes. I've got no, no models. I have no, no, no idea at all. I can, it, maybe I've repressed it. I, I doubt it though. I can't think, I can't think of any, any, anything at all. I simply was sitting in a room one afternoon and I, I was actually watching a television program, uh, a BBC documentary. This was in 1973. You may remember, or no, you won't remember. In 1973, uh, the people in the West had really almost got past the war and austerity and all those things and we were beginning to feel pretty affluent. And at that point we began to worry about the poor people of the world, poverty. Uh, we started to pay attention to um, famines in Ethiopia and so on. And, uh, and there was a BBC documentary about um, poverty. And there was uh, an episode I was watching from some islands in the South Pacific where people were supposed to be... In dreadful poverty, and what I saw on the screen were pictures of very strong-looking, brown-skinned men coming out of the out of the sea, carrying huge amounts of fish, and behind them were forests lo- laden with fruit, and 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 none of them looked poor, and none of them looked miserable, and I thought there's something wrong with this picture, and. Uh, it just suddenly reignited a a feeling that i'd obviously had uh, for for quite some time that i simply couldn't go on living in a world that i hadn't visited uh, that i really needed to see it for myself and because i'd been living in relative poverty myself in this ruin i mean i wasn't earning much money i was spending most of my time building for no reason for no profit whatsoever and uh, just did enough work to buy the, the cement and the, the mortar and the, and the uh, uh, few things that I needed to do the job, um, and was extremely happy, uh, I realized that being poor didn't mean automatically that you'd be miserable, um, and I thought, I've got to find out about this, and it was literally that afternoon as I was thinking, well, what can I do? I'd I really need to go out into the world. How can I do it? And I thought, well, the best thing would be to get somebody to commission me to do it um, uh, and write a book. And what would that book be about? And how would I do the journey? And uh, I thought of all the various ways one could make a journey like that. And it suddenly struck me that doing it on a motorcycle might be an extremely good idea, a good way to do it, and also um possibly a very a pioneering way that i'd never heard of anybody doing anything like that on a motorcycle i never heard of anybody going anywhere on a on a motorcycle actually um, and that's when i decided to do it right then then and there and it took me 6 months to get it going but that was all right it was nothing ever happened along the way to take my mind off it i thought it would be very dangerous i i thought there would be a good chance that i'd never survive it. But uh, I've never courted danger. On the contrary, I always go overboard to avoid it if I can. But I've never let it get in the way of something that I really wanted to do.
0: And then we had your more off-the-wall ones. (laughs) And I'm sure he'll chuckle when he hears this, because I say this tongue in cheek, but Ed March and Rachel Lasham, when I interviewed them, as they were riding across Canada in the winter time, and I think the music for this intro was rather appropriate. (music) Ed March has been traveling the world on his Honda Super Cup, a C90. And he's been posting videos the entire time, and he has a a load of followers watching what he does. And he's kind of crazy and fun. And now he's with Rachel Lasham, who's also, well, kind of crazy and fun, as you're going to get from this interview. I think the best way to introduce them is to play this little soundbite from a video he's posted on YouTube about checking how the tongue sticks to a frozen pole.
2: We've always wanted to know what happens if you lick the lamppost at minus 15. Uh oh. Uh mm, oh. Oh no. (laughs) 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 Oh. I'm actually stuck. Uh oh.
7: What do I do?
3: Mm. Uh, this
2: is a (laughs) problem. Uh. ow right never do that
0: well it's not very often you hear an experiment like that so don't do it don't go putting your warm wet tongue against the freezing cold metal pole but it wasn't the last time ed did it because rachel told me that he did it again to a tent pole so there you go sometimes we're just a little slow on the uptake And aside from all the fun and the joking and laughing that goes on when you interview Ed March and Rachel Asham, he's got some real serious points to make about riding a small bike. And it's interesting because you'll listen to this interview and you'll hear him talk about riding a small bike. And at first, you'll probably say, There's no way I would ride a Honda C90 anywhere. And after you hear him talk about it, you realize, You know what? That sounds like a darn good idea. And I've got a good friend that almost went and bought a C90 in Australia to go for a ride there because he heard the these interviews about riding these tiny bikes over great distances and here I asked Ed if the reason he takes a bike is because the inexpensive repairs the bike is very cheap to maintain
2: um, within reason yeah um, the main thing that I really start to like about taking a taking a little small friendly bike um, is the attitudes that you get from people like when I was riding through little villages in the middle of Cambodia and Vietnam I'd pull up at a set of traffic lights next to like a hundred other Honda C90s and as they would look at me and they'd look at my bike and they'd realize that like, I'm the same as them. Um, I'm at their level. Um, I'm completely relatable and they're sort of looking at my bike and they're going like, wow, I could do that. And this guy is probably a normal guy, you know, because he isn't flashy and I can, and I can comprehend the amount of money that he has. Whereas, um, you know, and, uh, every time I got to a border crossing, I would never had a border guard ask me for any bribes, because if you've seen a picture of my bike and the amount of rust that's on it, um, nobody is expecting me to have any money. Um, And, you know, you'd like rock up at a hotel in the middle of nowhere and ask if they've got a cheap room. And they'll look at my bike and go, oh yeah, okay. Whereas if if I were to rock up on a bike that's like 10 years of their salary, um, more often than not, um, in my opinion, you'd, you'd end up with what I call Ferrari syndrome. Which is where, if you drive a Ferrari around the U.S., within reason, you shouldn't be. Um, am I allowed to swear on this? No, <laughs> I've got your <to> word <laughs> Um Yeah, that's uh, not swearing, is it? Yeah. Um, within reason, um, you'd be seen to uh, probably not be not be such a nice or um, relatable guy. Um, but driving a Ferrari shouldn't shouldn't actually make you that kind of a person. But people just look at it and they think, why is that guy? driving around that thing that's so flashy um, and yeah the reason I ride my little bike is because that just doesn't happen really, people just look at the bike and they just smile
0: Well, due to time constraints, I'm going to have to cut it off there, I mean, I could go on for a long time, we've had so many great people with great stories on here but if you're interested in them, you can always go back and check the back episodes and listen to those shows in their entirety So there it is, one year, happy birthday Adventure Rider Radio This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motor, M O T O R, tourer, T-O-U-R-E-R.com. Now make sure when you go to Max BMW, let them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And same for Motor Tour. When you go there and you sign up, maybe you're posting something, make sure you post something about you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's really important that these people that have taken the time to advertise with us, that they know that those ads are being effective, because that's really important. And without that, of course, we can't survive. The other thing that we need is donations coming in because our advertising doesn't cover our overhead. We really do financing of the show out of our pocket. So what we'd really appreciate is if you think we're doing a good job and you think the show is worthwhile giving a little money for, drop by the website, click on the donate button. You can either choose how much to donate or you can click on one of the the preset numbers on there and donate. It means a great deal to me and Elizabeth here putting the show together. We really appreciate it. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, one more thing. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us on Facebook just by searching for Adventure Rider Radio. And on Twitter, it's at ADV Rider Radio. So make sure you connect with us through those send us your comments and suggestions through our own website you can drop on there and click on the comment button or suggestion button and of course the donate button on there as well don't forget about that one as well get out there and ride
4: Hi, this is Grant Johnson from horizonsunlimited.com and you're on Adventure Rider Radio.